Today's episode of the Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Even though their name's Hotel Tonight, you can book in advance for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. I used it recently for a quick weekend trip with my wife in San Francisco. It was fantastic. It's easy. Book hotels in 10 seconds and just three taps and a swipe. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and presented by Major Domo Media. If I sound funny, it's because I'm still in the Rockies fishing. But I have to introduce my good friend Nick Kroll for this podcast before I get to go fly fishing. So Nick, I have known for almost 20 years. He's one of my close friends. We've been able to support each other, even though I'm not in comedy and he's not in culinary world. We've been able to support each other for a long time, partly because we chose to do types of jobs that our peers didn't quite understand. And I've been so thrilled to see his success over the years and really grow into his own. And most recently as like a real, I won't say real actor, but like a real actor. I think he's an amazing actor besides being an incredibly funny guy and just a good dude all around. One of the best guys you can ever meet. So we taped the show a couple weeks ago in Los Angeles and we had so much to talk about that we had to break it up into two parts. On part one, we talk about how the two of us met, how Nick came up in the comedy world, and how he found success outside traditional institutions. So this is part one of my interview with Nick Kroll. Enjoy. Thanks so much. I just got Nick Kroll a cup of coffee, and he bitching me out because I didn't give him milk and sugar. <laughs> well, here's the thing is, for someone who is in the... Uh to say you're in the service industry is probably demeaning and not fair and, and incorrect, right? <laughs> I don't like being called in the service industry. Right, I don't like that not. phrase at yeah, all. Uh, why would you? It's incorrect. It's demeaning. And there are racial undertones. Yes, there are. Yeah, <laughs> they're in the service industry. So that means that we're not good enough <laughs> on a normal level. No. In fact, you're better at service <laughs> than others. No. It's, but it's the perfect example of it, which is incredibly thoughtful that you got me an iced coffee. But it's like, I got you a nice coffee, how I want to drink it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, great, I'll take it. So, yeah, so yeah. this is what uh, living in Hollywood will do to you. Mm -hmm. I did something nice for Cole, and his immediate reaction was like, that's great, but it could be better. It could be better. Always. Yeah. We're always trying to improve. Always trying, to improve. <laughs> always trying to make that better. I don't mean to say that you're in the service industry. You're in the podcast business. <laughs> this isn't even my full-time job, man. I know. I'm working more than I've ever worked yeah. in my life. Yeah, how have you done that? Why are you doing it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm actually, there's a good portion of my day where I have anxiety about all the stuff that's happening. Sure. But simultaneously, I have like really good feelings about all the things that we're doing because we're executing at a high level. Yes. Just not myself personally, but the business. And yeah. the goal is to be able to like switch hats. Yes. Set a bunch of different tables and then. It's not that I'm trying to be industrious. Yeah. I'm just fucking highly ADD. Yes. I understand that. <laughs> in your case, I understand that in general. I find personally that I am 
generally at my best when I have two or three things that I am very passionate about going on at once that I am sort of maneuvering between because my brain can't really stay focused on one thing for a whole day. Like I need like three things that I'm in a perfect world. I've got three things that I'm in the deeply in the middle of. What are these three things? Uh, there's my show, Big Mouth on Netflix. There's a uh, chronic masturbation problem, <laughs> <laughs> which some might say is connected, but I see as two very separate entities. They mean it's connected to Big Mouth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and basketball stats. No. Um, at the moment, it's really, it's Big Mouth. We're finishing Big Mouth. But I feel at my best, my brain feels at its most potent when I am bouncing between, if not not like six things, but like two to three things in a day. I have, I might as well have like multiple personalities. Right. Yeah. How many are you at any, it doesn't, it's, it varies. It's not nice what happens in my head. But we're, before you got into all of the things you do, before you opened your first restaurant, did you have that? instincts did you have that no i mean i mean i think we should roll it back a little Mm -hmm. bit right i've known nick kroll since we were on a birthday pub crawl (laughs) in the year 2000 i mean we met before sure in like i think 99 2000 maybe maybe Maybe. yeah maybe through some we have mutual friends yeah we have many mutual friends that i went to college with that he went to high school with i'd say like Oh three. Oh three. We were for sure. We definitely hung out for sure. Getting blind drunk on the Staten up, Island Cyclone yes, game. Yes. Taking the ferry. Yeah. A pub crawl down in like the financial district, then getting on a boat, going to a baseball, and game. then going to four or five more bars. Oh my god. Our good friend Dan Schaefer. Yeah. Yes. We were also the two individuals that were. Um, I mean, amongst our group of friends that were headed to like finance or mostly finance mm-hmm. type of stuff. Mm-hmm. We were the only two that were like, hey, this guy, Nick Kroll, he's going to try to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. And this guy, Dave Chang, he's absolutely no idea what the fuck he's going to do. So every fucking two weeks, he changes his mind on what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And this week, it's going to be a cook. Yeah. And we were not <laughs> laughed at in front of us, but definitely no. shit was spoken behind our backs. I would hope so. I believe yeah. so. And I would say, and I can't speak to your experience, it was like, I look back on most of my friends as not being like, you suck. It was kind of like, oh, you're you're going to try to do this. It's cute that you're trying to do this thing. It's a nice hobby. Yeah. But then when you opened Noodle Bar, I went with a bunch of those guys. I mean, we all went early, early on. I still think of it as I remember going to Noodle Bar when you guys had dumplings. We did have That's so early on. We had dumplings. Mm-hmm. A and menu that was like almost like you like wrote on the menu and you gave it to us to order because we tried to do it without servers. Mm-hmm. And we gave Hershey kisses and uh, oh, and like really? ice cream sandwiches from across the street. Oh wow! Yeah, that was like the first three four months. Yes, I dead empty, dead empty. It was not packed when I was there at all. What happened? What was there? Was it the eater? Was it like eats cheap eats or something like that? I mean, was it just a bunch of press? You know, the times twenty five and under, but it was also just we were dead man walking. You know, yeah, like we were given a. Terminal cancer diagnosis, uh-huh. and it was like, well, fuck it. I'm not going to work tomorrow. Let's just do something crazy. Yeah. That's sort of how it happened. Wow. But, um, you know, serving dumplings, I think, is a symbolic sort of metaphor about what we were trying to do. We were trying to serve things that other people wanted. Yes. You don't want dumplings. No, I never wanted to serve dumplings, but we're like, shit, we're a noodle bar. Yeah. And it wasn't even I knew what a noodle bar was supposed to be. Right. Because we weren't trying to be a ramen shop. We weren't trying to be Japanese But there weren't even really ramen shops in New York at that point. No, there was Rai Rai Kran just around the corner. Yeah. But like for the most part, we were trying to do something like in the in-between. Yes. 
we changed so much over the past six, nine months that first year. But you started to come in because you and John Mulaney were performing at Rafifi. Yes. Yeah, on 11th between 1st and 2nd. And we were located on 10th Street, 1st Avenue. Yeah. So Kroll would come in mostly after the performance, I think. Yeah, we would come in afterwards. I feel like I would also see you like I'd be outside Rafifi getting ready for a show and you'd be like walking home for like 10 minutes or like brain dead, it felt to me. <laughs> I was not in good state of mind. Yes, no. and we cross over and then we'd come in afterwards or sometimes a little before a gig and have like <laughs> eat 10 dumplings or noodles and then get on stage to try to be funny. And then you guys open, and then you opened Sambar. In 2006. Yeah, which was around the corner from my apartment. And I, that was my first decision. I was like, this is the first restaurant. I've never felt like I got a home spot restaurant-wise. I was like, I'm going to come to this goddamn restaurant, and I'm going to go here all the time. When we're serving burritos. Yes, Korean burritos, <laughs> late-night Korean burritos. No, and then late-night just was insanity. Oh, right. It was just like, it was Korean burritos, which I enjoyed. By day. By day. And I was like, I'm going to muscle my way through these Korean burritos and then <sighs> go do shows on a full burrito <laughs> stomach. Um and then, again, that was another one where you kind of figured it out. Yeah, we were definitely going out of business. Yeah. And we had to, like, change the whole model again. Yeah. And then it wasn't late night. It didn't start late no, night. No, we did. We, we ran Korean Chinese burrito bar by day from 12 to 12. At yes. Noon to midnight. Uh-huh. And then from midnight to 4 in the morning, we ran a completely different restaurant. Like, <laughs> it was fucking insane. Yeah. And the other one ended up working a little better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, without a doubt, if I was trying to pull myself away and be objective, mm -hmm. probably the most insane restaurant in American history that's worked over the past, like, 50 yeah. years, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But before we talk too much about this, mm -hmm. right, let's go back to how you even got into comedy mm -hmm. and started going to, like, yes. how did this happen? A guy like you being like, fuck it. Because you weren't destined to do comedy. Your dad is a hilarious man. He's a very funny man, but he is not a comedian. No, he's... A serious businessman. Yes. Who I, I love talking to. Yes, he loves talking to you as well. My dad and you go to weird uh, <laughs> power businessmen conferences in weird places. I think the the one that you guys, what you were in, like, was in Canada or we was it? We were in uh, Whistler. Yeah. I was there. God, I don't even know what the fuck I was doing there. But I'm sitting there because I have to, like, work on some demo. <laughs> it's sort of like a faux TED Talk type of thing. And uh, next thing I know, it's like. Jules Kroll. And I was like, man, I wonder if that's Nick's dad. Mm -hmm. Sure enough. Yeah. It is. But he was wearing a like a long leather Native American like blazer he like jacket. What I believe like General Custer looked like, <laughs> like later in life or yes. something. You know what I mean? It was just like really weird. Yeah. It is downtime. <laughs> and like all of these very important people were there asking his advice. And he, he just said zero fucks. He, uh, yes. <laughs> Well, I think he admired that about you as well. So he, I mean, yeah, I come from that very sort of, you know, my dad built this company himself. And then now he and my brother, Jeremy, run not the one that my dad built originally, but they've built another one called K2, Intelligence, Corporate Investigations and Risk Mitigation, all this kind of stuff. So I interned for him in college. I went to Georgetown, but I started doing improv in college. That was and, the and thing. And that's how you got to meet John. That's how I got to meet John, Mike Probiglia, Alice Becker, a bunch of other. They were all Georgetown kids. All Georgetown kids. We all went to Georgetown. We all were there for various reasons. But uh, I met Mike my freshman year doing this thing called The Funniest Act on Campus. And then uh, I bombed. He won. But he was like, I think that guy might be funny. Invited. He invited me to audition for a sketch show. And I remember going to... 
the first sketch show rehearsal where we read through a bunch of the sketches. It's one of the few times in my life where I have a very clear memory of like how stories are actually written, where I like walked out of that sketch, like that read through and was like, oh, uh, this is the thing I'm supposed to do. Like I just had that feeling. Like, and, and how I, old are you? I was uh, 19 or 20. But you probably are at the School of Foreign Service. Yeah, I know. I couldn't have gotten into the School of Foreign Service. <laughs> but, but like you're I, at I was Georgetown. at like Georgetown studying like history. I was a history major and Spanish and art minor. And um, I always like think I had wanted to do comedy or be an actor, but I never actually thought anyone actually did it. Do you know what does that make right. sense? You know, you're just like, oh, well, people are actors or people are comedians, but like. Which is crazy because you're like, I'm just a Jewish kid from Westchester. How could I ever be that person? It's like, well, with your access and privilege, you should be able to be able to do whatever you want. But it was not the world that I grew up in. My parents, I didn't, we didn't know anybody in show business or or anything like that, you know. And how did Georgetown have like sort of this hotbed? Like you always consider like Harvard and all yeah, that shit. Kind of happenstance. I think. I mean, I think part of the advantage was the lack of comedy presence there allowed a random group of people that ended up assembling at a similar time to all of a sudden, not only were we doing improv shows once a month, but like the acapella fest needed a host. And so we would just host that. And it didn't matter what it was and that all the people there were like waiting for like a bunch of dudes in blazers to sing brown eyed girl. It was like, they needed someone to host it. So like every couple months, like I was getting on stage in front of like 500 people. So by the time I finished college, I had had a ton of stage experience, which if I had gone to Harvard or NYU or even like the Wesleyans or other liberal arts schools where so many comedy people have come out of, I didn't have to compete as much in college to get stage time. So by the time I got to New York, I weirdly had a level of confidence because I had been like a big deal at my little, I had been a big fish in a smaller pond and John the same and Birbiglia the same. And so when we got to New York, we were like, well, let's go do it. Like we feel good. And then, and then New York beats the shit out of you for a little while. But if you have this sort of inner. How many people that you knew when we all moved to New York, right? That first year or two was so mm -hmm. fucking hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it's easier now for kids for some reason, but how many people dropped out of pursuing their dream of being a comedian? You know, I think about it all the time of people who I started with, like in the, you know, because they're the guys who I went to college with. Then they're the people I started and met in open mics. And I met, like, in my early open mic days, I met my second or third open mic. I met Jesse Klein, who, before John and I hosted the show together, Oh Hello, what it became Oh Hello at, at Rafifi, Jesse Klein was my original partner on that. And she and I hosted a show called Welcome to Our Week. But Jesse Klein I met on the street and then into an open mic. And now she's one of the voices on Big Mouth and is a incredibly talented writer. And she ran Amy Schumer's show and she's written a bunch of TV and and is a great stand-up in her own right. I met Chelsea Peretti early on doing stand-up, uh, who I still work with and is, you know, done incredibly well as a as a writer and actor and comedian, and a bunch of other people who I still see. And then there are people who like when you go to open mics in New York back at least when I started, it would be like me and Chelsea Pretty and Jesse Klein and you know, five other talented. Are you considered amateurs at this point? Uh, yeah. I mean, we were paying money to have the opportunity to perform for seven minutes at like two in the morning for— You're paying money to— Paying money. Paying $7 to put your name in a hat to get it picked 32nd. So you'd wait 
you know, and slowly you'd figure out the system be like, oh, I'm 30 second. I'm going to go leave and try to do two other shows while I, and then come back here. But you just wait and watch a mix of people like Chelsea, who are like the future of comedy, and then like angry 60-year-old men who are living with their mothers and like in sweatpants who are just like an open mic is an opportunity to speak to other people. So it was this bizarre mix. That and should then, be a documentary. Oof. I think it'd be too dark. <laughs> um, but it is this weird moment in time. It is an interesting documentary in that it's this weird moment in time where you have people, and I don't mean to say this egotistically, who are the future of a, of a profession, the future of comedy, with people who are in a very, very different place who are just trying to literally have a social interaction with someone during a day. And then it progresses, and you slowly, at least the way it worked when I came up, was you had open mics, then you had these what they call book shows, where someone would get a bar and be like, I'm booking a show now. And so I would show up and be like, hey, Dave, like I'd love to come do your show. And they'd be like, okay, you're booked three weeks from now or whatever. I'd be like, wonderful. And then... I would get my own book show, and if either of them could get an audience, you'd come to me and be like, I'd like to do your show, and it'd be this thing. But again, you're still performing for eight people. And then slowly it grows, and there were shows in New York when I started out that were the cool ones, like Luna Lounge was a huge one where I I saw, I remember the first times I saw like Sarah Silverman or Mark Marin or Dimitri Martin or Jesse Klein, and then like Flight of the Concords would show up from New Zealand after having won the Perrier Award in Scotland at whatever that fucking festival is called that I have still have yet to go to. Um, fuck them. Um, <laughs> um, but and and like so, you're slowly moving up the ranks, and then I was sort of simultaneously doing stand up and characters and sketch at UCB and around that kind of. Can you talk about UCB? Like, how important is that to an aspiring comedian? I mean, I think it's a combo of UCB was where I studied improv in college, or their sort of tenants became what we worked off of in college. And we would come to New York, like our improv group would come to New York and do a workshop with someone like Matt Walsh, who's one of the founding members of UCB, who's now on Veep and done a ton of stuff. And it became this community. When I moved to New York, I had some friends who were a little older than me who were there. And our improv group from college went there and did a show. So it was a combination of learning basic tenets for comedy. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the equivalent is in the culinary world, it's similar to being, I, I would assume, a line cook at a at a fine a, a restaurant where you're just learning every, if you're paying attention, you're learning every aspect of the game, right? Right. And then it was more important when, when I was coming up because there wasn't the web, there wasn't the internet in the same way there is now, where if you're funny and you put a funny video up, it could go viral and 10 million people see it and all of a sudden agents and managers and TV executives and casting people are like, I want to see that kid who just got 15 million views on YouTube. It was, there was none of that. So you had to go to institutional spaces to get a stamp of approval that then if you could manage to meet an agent or commercial agent or manager, you could be like, I'm doing a show at UCB. And they knew that if you were doing a show at UCB, there was a certain level to what you were doing that meant it was like there had been a, a vetting process that meant it was it was okay for them to take the time to go see you do a one-man show or a stand-up performance or a sketch or something like that. And at this point, this is where like we talk about this stuff a lot in terms of the comparison between your industry and the culinary industry and particularly like cuz you know I'm weirdly super competitive yeah. and I'm always looking at the competition or even my friends just to see what they're doing and I do know that exists in the comedy world where it's still very fraternal yeah. and it's like a sisterhood brotherhood but simultaneously like you have to do you right yes. 
And how does that work where you're like, I'm funnier than this motherfucker? Like, why are they, <laughs> why are they like getting chosen for all this shit? Well, it is a weird thing because I, I do see how you operate and what revs your engine. And I'm like, oh, I'm not like that. And then I'm like, no, I'm fucking like that. <laughs> uh, and I think it's like, at least when I was coming up, there was two camps in how you make your way into the comedy world. Either you're stand-up or you're more in the sketch improv space. I kind of hovered between both. And there were the stand-ups who were, you know, like I came up with Aziz. And I watched Aziz be so young and funny and look different than anyone had ever seen a stand. Like the idea that there was this like little Indian kid who sounded like Chris Rock and Mitch Hedberg and had, was talking about like MIA and all this stuff that like everyone was just like their minds blew up. And I remember being like, I'm so proud and psyched for this guy who I'm coming up with, who's my friend. And I'm so fucking jealous <laughs> and angry that he's getting these opportunities and I want these opportunities. And then on the improv and sketch side, I watched that happen with people get selected to go to Aspen or to get, you know, an audition for Saturday Night Live or get an audition to get on The Daily Show. So I was like a few years behind like Ed Helms and Cordry. And, you know, they would, The Daily Show would come through and there was like a general thing like UCB, like they're holding new auditions for The Daily Show. And Colbert and, and Carell had been there. And I was still a little young to be in that mix, but I remember when Helms and Cordry got picked and it was all of a sudden like, whoa, whoa like this is now changing, you know, like we're giving, we're now being let It's like a in. seismic shift in understanding your relation to the world yes. now, right? Yes. And the amazing thing about it is, and I do believe this and I've, and I've seen you with your friends in this business is you can be competitive or envious of people. But then if they're your friends who you see as having talent, you're then incredibly happy for them yeah. and, and want them to succeed. Cause it only, I do believe like the tide rises, right? But it also then becomes a motivating factor for me to be like, well, fuck, man. I'm not on The Daily Show. I'm not on Saturday Night Live. How do I, how do I go do this? And, and that's the same exact same feeling, I think, with many of my chef friends, peers, the ones that we're like friendly with, right? We're like, we genuinely want each other to do well, but it's healthy competition. Yeah. It's like they're doing something like, shit, I have to raise my yes. game. And what I wanted to suggest is, do you think that it's been beneficial for your career that like you didn't get chosen for some of those things earlier on? Like, I mean, it's hard to like connect the dots after the fact, but for me, at least if I got the certain positions that I think that I wanted, yeah, I would not be here. Yeah. Well, I think both of us are similar in, in that some people thrive within institutions, existing institutions, and some people give off some signal that they're not going to be great in existing institution. So whether, and I can't speak to like, whether you would have been like chosen to be the head chef at like Danielle or something like that, right? You gave off some vibe that they were like, fuck that dude. We're not letting 100%. Him go. Yeah. yeah. And, and I gave off a different version of it, but I'm sure there was some either. And it's easy for me to say like, I gave off some vibe that I didn't want to be on SNL, even though I auditioned and desperately wanted to be on SNL. And I, but I think certain people are built to exist within existing institutions and other people are like, I got to go create my own thing. And I think it's probably like your dad built a business. My dad built a business. And I think there's something either in our bones or something that makes you want to go create your version of what you saw your parents do. I was also thinking about this, at least for myself, and maybe there's some way it applies to you too, was it's a slower education, yes. right? Like 
and it's something I try to preach cooks and almost anyone that is younger that asks for advice is don't worry about your peers. Just do what you need to do. Yeah. And blooming late is actually maybe a benefit. I think so. Now, looking back to answer your original question, I believe that I'm happy I didn't like explode out of the gate at 25. I feel like the best thing that could have happened to me has been a slow, consistent build of things, opportunities I've been given and opportunities that I've created for myself. And that at like 40, that I feel really happy with all the things I get to do and how in control of my career I am. Yeah, like I'm not necessarily envious of the people who I've seen who just exploded out of the gate and then have to match what they did. And they might not have actually the skill set to do that because they have had to try to operate at some huge level or become so famous. That they didn't grow anymore. Yeah. Or that things are expected of them or that people can put a branding on them based on like you were in that thing or you did this thing and now this is who you are. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Yahoo Fantasy Football. Let's talk about some of the ingredients that make Yahoo Fantasy Football. The league, the rules, the punishment, the trash talk. But fantasy football starts with you, the commissioner. You're the head chef of the league. And it all fires up when you get the league back together. Yahoo has spent the offseason making serious upgrades to enhance your league's experience. Upgrades like easier scoring, new trophies, and a buttery smooth app experience. I know because I am the commissioner of my league and we've used Yahoo for a number of years and being the commissioner is the best because you get away with a lot of stuff. So when you hit that renew button on yahoo.com slash fantasy football, your season will be legendary. So commish, grab the league, set a draft date and let the fantasy football flow. Renew your league now at yahoo.com slash Dave Chang fantasy football. That's yahoo.com slash Dave Chang fantasy football. And now back to the Nick Kroll Part one. Would you also say this like slow, like maturation process has also been with like met with resistance, right? And Mm -hmm. because like we're like the same age and I feel like the more I've had, when I say resistance, like obstacles or things I've had to maneuver around that have been really hard, Mm -hmm. it's definitely made me better for it. And the more of those experiences that I've gone through, it just has made me a better, more mature, well-adjusted person. Yes. And I think I'm able to handle this shit better now. Had this kind of success happened when I was 25, I know I'd be dead, you know? Yeah. But I would say it's interesting. Like, I think about your, you know, we both were coming up similar times doing whatever we were doing. But I remember when Noodle Bar hit and then Sambar took a minute and then hit again, that, like, I would think of you as having hit in a real way in your space and then continue to grow it out in different ways, but it didn't feel that way to you or no, I, I guess the best way to describe this is like, it's funny. I think when I talk to people, sometimes they look at me, particularly when I was younger and they said, Oh, you planned a lot of this or you were doing this right. or you knew exactly what you're doing. I'm like, no, I actually had no idea what right. I was doing. And I was completely in shock. Were there moments where I might've had, so I'm like, I wouldn't say hubris, but confidence that I could do something. It was only confidence to prove people wrong, <laughs> but it wasn't confidence in my own abilities, which <laughs> no one ever told me, like, you're good at these things. Right, right. <laughs> and I think it, like, culminated when you had just moved, left to New York for L.A. Yeah. And <laughs> we were at the GQ party yeah, at yeah. the yeah, yeah. Chateau Romont. Yeah. And I didn't even know what the fuck was going on. Yeah. 
I had no idea. I was your they date. Got me, they got me dressed. Uh-huh. They flew me out there. And I was just like, what's going on? Like, yeah. I literally was completely clueless as to what to expect. And I didn't even understand if it was significant. I was just like, okay, this is this right. is a nice trip. It's and then I called you up and I'm like, hey, Kroll, you want to like come to this thing tonight? Like, I didn't even know it was yeah. serious. And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do want to go to the GQ party at the Chateau. And it was a very, very fun night. Yes, but it was. It is an interesting. You were like, they wanted my pork buns. Yeah, I thought I was there to cook. You know what I mean? Remember, I yes. thought I was there yeah. to cook. Yeah. I didn't even quite fathom the fact that, like, oh, we're here to like celebrate. Yeah, I was like, I still don't even recognize what the fuck happened. I yeah. was like, oh, I have to get pork buns out. And they're like, no, 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 you can't cook. I'm like, what? What are you like? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're you're supposed to sit down and drink too much red wine yeah. with Zach Galifianakis. That was a fun chocolate lasagna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll tell these stories. Yes. But that we it is I agree that there is no game plan. I mean, I've had game plans where I'm like, oh boy, I'd like to have in a very loose concept, I'd like to have X, Y, and Z, but you know But you knew what was going to be at the end of the rainbow should you have been successful. Just because of all your peers and the people that were heroes, right? Like, yes. You've heard or heard stories. Yes. I had no fucking idea. <laughs> really? Who, 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 who could I have asked? Oh, this is what's yeah. happening. Yeah. You know? Well, I guess also it's like, I guess there's like a, what, 50-year run at, and more of like what comedy looks like, what comedy is supposed to look like, even though it's evolved and changed. I think the idea of the restaurant and culinary world, it's not nearly as systematic as comedy has become. No. But I have always looked at comedy as something that, I should study because it's been so established for 50 plus years yeah. as to how it affects people and the trends and what's what's interesting to people. And, and I think there is a lot of similarities, quite frankly. Sure. Well, I think there is, I mean, amongst the people whose careers I admire, and it was one thing my dad used to say to me about, he's like, what you and your friends do is very entrepreneurial. You are building your business. You are creating products out of whatever you can that you then try to bring to the marketplace, you know? And so I think he saw what I was doing as an extension of what he did. I'm just imagining your dad say that is exactly what he would say. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's true. And it's like, and I've, again, I've watched you do similar things in what you do. And I think, again, you don't know exactly. It wasn't like, all right, 10 years ago, I was like, all right, 10 years from now, I will have an animated show on Netflix because Netflix was barely a DVD business 10 years ago. And I'll be doing X, Y, and Z. But I have to say that right now in what I'm doing, it's exactly what I would have hoped I was doing. Even if I didn't know exactly what that was and I had no plan in place, that the various things I'm doing are exactly what would have tickled me to no end to think that's where my career would be. So. At Rafifi's, I saw the very first incarnation of um, Oh, oh. Hello uh-huh. with Mulaney. Yeah. And <laughs> I joke as to who served who more. Like, I served less people than I think that people came to your show. <laughs> yes, yes. And it was very funny. You do stand up. I remember going to some of your early stand up shows, and it was like I could see this like growing confidence, and you were getting better at it. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I moved to LA because you started to show, you were on the show. Right? Is that why you moved to LA? I moved to LA to, yeah, I moved to LA. I went for a pilot season, and my last audition I booked was for a pilot on ABC for a show called Caveman. Oh, that's right. Fuck. The hit show Caveman. (laughs) Again, I would, I'm like, I'm trying to think. Yeah. (laughs) Because you did this commercial. Did you do the commercials? I wasn't in the commercials. The commercials people loved. 
The TV show people did not. But it was this great, again, I would, I mean, it's, I don't know if people get bored of hearing me try to create parallels, but it's like, it, it was a fucking rough job that was, you know, it was eight, 90 hour weeks. I was in four hours of makeup every morning to become a caveman. But I had never had a real acting job before, and I got paid much more money than I'd ever earned to learn how to act and in a place where I was hidden behind a mask. And so when the show didn't work, it was fine. We'll edit it out so no one even remembers that. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was. It's fine. It's like, no, but it is. It, but I did get to learn. It, again, it was like, oh, okay, that's what a script coordinator is. That's what— I need to listen to the actually the writer because the writer is the one who's in control. The director I need to also listen to, but it's really the writer who, I, if I want to change a line, I have to talk to the writer. So this show was actually like a blessing. It was for me. It was like my gut is it's like whatever. There, I'm sure there was some restaurant you worked at where you got your fucking ass kicked yes. and hated everybody or not. Loved some people that you met there because I didn't hate the people who worked on the show, but you got your ass kicked you went home exhausted. You weren't happy with what artistically was happening at every moment, but you learned a shit ton about what it was like to be in a kitchen, what it, you got to observe what front of house looks like. And so that when you get your opportunity to create your first restaurant, or I got my first opportunity to be an actor on another show or to create my own show, I was like, I'll do that, that, I won't do that, I won't do that, I won't do that. Yeah, I think that summarizes my experience pretty well at a, a certain restaurant. Yeah. And I just had PTSD just thinking yeah. about it. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. And I have, I'm so glad that that was my first job since so I would have nothing at that time to compare it to because I would have lost my mind. If I had had another job before that to be like, oh, every job doesn't start at 4 a.m. on Monday morning in four hours of prosthetics to then shoot 12, 15, 16 hour days. And then by, so like we would open on Monday morning at 4 a.m. And then we would shoot all week, single camera show, so that by Saturday, Friday night into Saturday, we would wrap at Saturday morning at about 4 a.m. And then I would get out of makeup and have like less than 48 hours to try to become a shell of a human being again. And I, my skin, I have very sensitive, crazy skin. My skin revolted against this makeup and the glue and everything. My skin was falling. I mean, it was, it was, anyway. But it just sounds like a nightmare. I couldn't. It was a nightmare, but it was also great. And I learned so much doing it. And then when I finished, I was like, okay, that's what that is. That's what a network show is. That's what not being able to control what my writing is. That's what X, Y, and Z is. And so then I moved to LA and that got me to LA. That was like 10 years ago. And then I've just started to figure stuff out on my own and figure out other people who I want to collaborate with and what kind of shows out, you know, I went and was on the league which was a cable show, which was much closer to what I comedically wanted to be doing, where I had a lot more say, you know, it was like largely improvised and I had a lot more say with what I was going to say and do. And uh, I did that for... And you're still doing stand-up. Yeah, throughout all this, I was doing stand-up and or characters. Yeah, uh, along the way, doing stand-up and then also continued to do characters and started to shoot videos in character. So while the league is going on, I'm making like this video with my friend John Daly and and just director Jonathan Kreisel. I'd done these Bobby Bottle Service videos. Love Bobby Bottle Service. <laughs> <laughs> and then did uh, the Ed Hardy Boys, 
So it was like me and John as these Ed Hardy, Bobby Bottle Service wore a lot of Ed Hardy clothes and they went and solved crimes. Like the <laughs> Ed Hardy boys. In the and this case, is all on YouTube if you know Yeah, saying. yeah. The case of the missing sick belt buckle. Or Rich Dix. <laughs> uh, Aspen Bruckenheimer and Wendy Sean. Also with John Daly. And that was like maybe, maybe inspired by certain people that we knew growing up. <laughs> and Fabrice, Fabrice. Like I just started building out, making these little videos. And then I did a stand-up special in New York and William, at Williamsburg Music Hall, which was a mix of stand-up and some of these characters, including Oh Hello, Fabrice, Bobby, Chupacabra, the Latin radio host. And how are you coming up with all this shit? Uh, I mean, the Latin radio host was like driving around LA listening to Latin radio, like El Piolin. Or, and I was like, El Chupacabra. And Bobby was like a weekend in Vegas and just like, really, Bobby came up of me talking to actresses in character as this guy's like, Susan, can I talk to you for a second? You know, like, and my actress friends and other female friends being like, I know that. Oh, that fucking guy won't leave me alone. And I remember being in Vegas, canvassing for Obama and going out one night. And part of it was like, we went to some club and got bottle service. And I was like, oh, maybe it'd be funny if that guy who I've been doing that, like, oh, excuse me. Like, maybe he has a show, like a talk show at Bottle Service. And I was like, oh, he should be called Bob Bottle. So he should be Bobby Bottle Service. And then I, like, went home and made a little video on my computer. You know what would have been really funny if you were canvassing for Obama in the club as Bobby Bottle Service? <laughs> well, we, I eventually went to Senegal with Funnier and I, and we did a videos for Malaria No More as Bobby Bottle Service to open a club for mosquitoes. Bobby's pitch was... Let's open a club for mosquitoes because they're the ones spreading malaria and then they'll just want to get drunk and do bottle service and they won't want to sting people <laughs> and give them malaria. So we do the league for like three seasons. I had it built into my contract that if I created my own show that I was the star and producer of, that I could do both. So I basically shot a pilot for Kroll Show and then started Kroll Show. So there was like the last four, three or four seasons of the league I was then finishing the league and going and writing and then shooting Kroll Show and then going back to the league and editing Kroll Show. You know, I was, This is like the period where you were working your ass off. Yeah. We would see each other, not as much, but no. we would just catch up and we're like, wow, we're fucking Yeah, in the well, weeds. you were probably like, you were probably like opening Sydney and Toronto. Yep. The 30s for me was like, 20s, you're setting a table. 30s, you get to start like eating. You know, you get to do the thing you want to do. And then hopefully, you know, for both of us, the 40s is like an extension of what it is that you're doing or, or evolve into something else. I don't know. I just want it to be less neurotic. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's my goal, man. Yeah. How is that going? Not well. No. Not well. <laughs> I'm okay. You know, I think you are, you are inherently have a little more of that. Yeah. I mean, I have it. I think maybe you're, or at least you're more ironically in touch with it than I am. In some ways, I'm very Jewish, I yes. think. Yes, we've spoken about this oh, a lot, yeah. too. The Koreans yeah. and the Jews, come yeah. on. And then what happened also, what was funny was, over the past 10 years, I would see you on movies all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, small bits here or there. Yeah. You were in some, like, bigger films, and then, like, you started to become, like, real fucking actor. Yeah, I'm a very serious actor. <laughs> yeah, what, ha what were some of the films that you were in? I had a run when I got to LA of the little like scene in a movie. So it yeah. was like date night with Steve Carell and Tina Fey. I was like the asshole mater D and I had a fun little, like, you know, three minute scene with them. I had a second in like little Fockers. 
I had a scene in uh, Get Him to the Greek. I remember that. You I, and Aziz were in there. Yeah, and the scene with like Diddy was our boss, and it's like me and Aziz. I mean, if you look at that room, that room was like me, Aziz, Jake Johnson, ended up obviously doing a bunch of stuff, including New Girl and stuff, Ellie Kemper, and a bunch of other people who have gone on to do a bunch of stuff. Me and Aziz were also in I Love You, Man with Paul Rudd and, and Siegel. I maybe was in one or two more movies like that where I had like one right. one fun scene, and and which great. And then I sort of like went and started doing my own stuff and was sort of like, I think I have to stop being the guy who's got like one scene in one of these comedies. I need to like say no to those things and start to try to be like, I'm not just the guy you use for one scene. And then I slowly was constantly trying to do other stuff. And Jeff Nichols cast me in Loving a few years ago, which was the story of a historical drama telling the story of Richard and Mildred Loving, who were an interracial couple that got arrested for being married in Virginia. Shout out to your home state. You are from Virginia? I am from Virginia. And they were arrested for it and then came to Bernie Cohen, who I played, an ACLU lawyer who brought that case to the Supreme Court where the ban on interracial marriage was overturned. I remember listening to the trailer. Like I was in another room and the TV was on. I'm like... That's not Kroll telling a joke. That's not Kroll being Bobby Bottle Service. This is Kroll giving some impassioned soliloquy about <laughs> civil rights yeah. and humanity. I was like, what the fuck? And I look, and there you are, and you're in court. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I can watch this. Thing. I know. Well, that's the <laughs> it funny thing. It was just too serious. It was I, very weird for me. I know. Well, that's the funny thing is, like, you do this, and again, the parallels are there. You do this one thing. You get established. People are going to let you do the thing that you set out to do. You know, for me, it was comedy. And and it's like, oh, I'm allowed to go make comedy. I'm allowed to go do it. And then it's not a pivot. It's just like, I also want to do this. I also want to be doing comedy or being a serious actor. I mean, I remember shooting Loving with, and it's Jeff Nichols who directed as this crazy, talented, thoughtful, wonderful dude who's a really special filmmaker. And I mean, my stuff was with a few people, but it was largely with Joel Edgerton and, and Ruth Naga, who are really incredibly talented, very successful actors. And I remember shooting a scene and being like, they're like, great, we did it. Let's move on. I was like, so I just need to say the lines. <laughs> like, we don't need to figure out how to make this funny. Like, you just have to say what, and when it's done well, it's you can tell when it's done well. And when it's done badly, you can tell. But it was an interesting thing where I was like, oh, we don't have to figure out how to make this last thing funny. But all the expressions and mannerisms, all the stuff that you need to do to be a good actor, like, I you had to practice all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I had to, I'd practice it, but, it, you know, what's weird is, like, I got this big floppy face with all these big-ass features. So when you're doing a drama, I'm like, how do I control my face so it's not too big? You know what I mean? Whereas a comedy, the goal is to be like, you know, you're, like, trying to do something that is big in that, and all of a sudden you're in that drama space and you're trying to, like, okay, how do I express this without doing too much where I look like I'm in some other movie? And the question becomes whether people want to watch me do something where I'm not delivering a joke, whether they're comfortable with that, whether they still have in their head, like, this is the guy who we think of as funny. So... I did that, and I've had opportunities to do other things. But that all happened because I went and made—I started to, instead of doing, like, one scene of big comedy, I went and did some, like, indie dramedies, including one that I produced and made myself. We saw that in South by Southwest. Yes, yes. exactly. So that was, like, me, Mark Duplass, who I met on The League, 
help me produce and usher along. And then it's me and Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale, written by Jeff Cox and Liz Flayhive. Liz, who has just co-created Glow. And that was an opportunity for me to sort of like show I can do this other kind of stuff. And then Jeff Nichols. And what was the name? It was called Adult Beginners. And uh, it's a, you know, simple kind of small story of a guy who is a tech guy who loses everything and has to go move in with his sister and brother-in-law and become their toddler's nanny. And all of a sudden he's stuck in Westchester at in his mid-30s and he's like a nanny with every other nanny in the in Westchester. In an alternate universe that could have been could have been Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it was inspired by the fact that I have all these siblings with all these kids and was deeply like I remember my sister let me babysit her son who's now 15 when he was like six months old. And I like she came home and his like diaper was on backwards. <laughs> and there was like, you know what, Uncle Nick. I don't think you're going to be too much, too much babysitting. It's like show up and be funny. But I thought that was, it was like this transition and I could see you like, oh wait, I got this other stuff I need to work on and get better at. Mm -hmm. And I have the opportunity and you know, you have all this stuff happening now. You're in the Uncle Drew movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is maybe the first time we've had a pod where we're actually like promoting something. Oh yeah. And you now have a new movie coming out. Yeah. Operation Finale. Which is uh, the it's the true story of the hunt for Adolf Eichmann, one of Hitler's like top, good, guy, good guy, what a good good dude, <laughs> great guy, uh, top lieutenants. Sir Ben Kingsley plays Adolf Eichmann, and Oscar Isaac is the lead Israeli Mossad agent. And it's the true story of what the Mossad did, which was they went to Argentina, captured Adolf Eichmann, and brought him back to Israel to stand trial for his crimes. Chris White's directed it. And that, again, kind of came out of nowhere. It's just like, that's what I love about where I am in my career is that I can do the things that I do. And then I ho hopefully have built enough of a resume and various things like something like doing loving where they're like, oh, we're, we got to build out this like group of Mo Israeli Mossad agents. Like, let's get Nick Kroll to be one of them. And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so like last year I went from finishing Big Mouth to Atlanta to shoot Uncle Drew, where I got to play basketball and hang out with Kyrie Irving and Shaq, Shaq who's the best. Have you have you met hung I, out with Shaq? I, I've said this to many people that are close to me that if I could be anyone in, in the world, I would be Shaquille O'Neal and not change a goddamn thing. Yeah, I hear you. Having spent only a few, you know, various hours with him shooting the movie and then premiere and hanging out, I couldn't agree more. That dude, by the way, works crazy hard. Right. That dude is working. Except on his free throws. Yes. <laughs> but everything else, man, he is like, when we were shooting that movie, we would shoot one day and then I'd be like, where's Shaq today? And they're like, oh, he's, and then I'd look on Instagram and he'd be DJing at a music festival across the country for 100,000 people. <laughs> and then the next day he'd be back and he'd be doing TNT and then he'd shoot like a general commercial on a green screen at the TNT studios. But by the way, while he's doing it, he's having a blast. And he's super funny. I just love watching him on Inside yeah. TNT. Yeah. He's funny, NBC. man. So he's funny. so funny. so funny. Yeah. Him and Barkley are so funny. So so I went and shot that movie, Uncle Drew, in Atlanta, basically playing a white devil. You know, I'm like the, the white bad guy in this all African-American movie, which was so fun. Talking shit with Reggie Miller on and a basketball court. you played basketball card. with Kyrie. I played basketball with him. I mean, I got on, I was on the same court as them, <laughs> but it was a dream come true for me as a kid. And this movie's coming out and like, it looks awesome. Yeah. And so I went from Atlanta to Argentina to shoot this movie finale, which is like a, 
historical drama thriller. It's kind of like Argo, I'd say, is the easiest comp. And I got to run around Argentina and act with, spent a lot of time with Oscar, who is so talented and also funny and can hang, and got to like hang with Sir Ben Kingsley. We showed up to the table read for that movie, and Sir Ben Kingsley was off book at the table read. Like, he already memorized everything. He had memorized all of his lines. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if what people, like when you have a movie or TV show, everybody gets together and reads the script. You see what's working, what might need work. You know, you hear the whole movie out loud. Everybody's sort of staring at their pages. Maybe they're familiar with their lines, but they don't. I mean, he just, he sat there, would turn the page and then not look at it. He knew every one of his lines before we started production. I hope that he had an earpiece in just to psych you guys out. Oh. <laughs> Well, whatever it was, it fucking worked. But it made me be like, all right. That's what you got to do. We got to bring it. Like, this dude is the best. This guy's won an Oscar. He's bringing it. He's ready. Can you tell? Like, does he have that, like, gravitas? Oh, yeah. I mean. Does he scare the Does he scare everyone? Yes. Because he's so good. He scares everyone. And it was hilarious because he's playing Sir Adolf Eichmann. He's playing a monster of a human. And he walked on set the first day. And the combination of being celebrated actor, Sir Ben Kingsley. Did everyone address him as Sir? Yes. And you have to. <laughs> everyone addresses him <laughs> as Sir Ben Kingsley. I will now address him as Sir Ben you, Kingsley. It would serve you too. Yes. And and then he's playing this hated, despicable man. And he came to set that first day, and he was in it. But also, he came to set, the level of volume all of a sudden drops. Everyone who's working like rehearsals, when you're shooting a movie like that, you, you're moving so fast, you don't have days of rehearsals where everybody's working on things. It's like, you're like, all right, we shot that scene in the living room. We're going up to the bedroom. We're going to rehearse it with the director and the director of photography and the actors. They're gonna, We're going to figure out the blocking. We're going to put it all together. Then the crew gets to come in and watch the scene, and they learn what they have to do of how they're going to light it, who's going to do what. So... When, when Sir Ben shows up, all of a sudden, everybody, there is just a level of quiet and there is a level of like, you go quietly, do your job so that when we go to shoot this scene, everyone is ready to go. And it focused everybody in a way that was fascinating. And he is ready to go, man. He knew everyone. I mean, he just is. Does he ever flub his lines? No. He is ready to go. It leaves no room for amateur bullshit or mistakes or anything. Shit. No one in the culinary universe will ever think of me that way. <laughs> no? No way. But that's, well, that's your process though. But it's like, you know. They're, they're mo probably most likely like so underwhelmed. Like really fucking like, this, this fucking guy? This fucking is? Yeah. By the way, I don't think anyone in the acting world will ever think of me as that either. Do you know what I mean? It's like. But you don't know that. I mean, listen, it's not inconceivable. It's like, maybe you win an Oscar one day, right? Sure. You're like, maybe. whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's, but how cool would that fucking be? It would be awesome. Because I want to see tears. Oh, and man. If you don't oh, fucking I'll mention cry. me in the goddamn speech. Dude, I will mention you so many times in speech. And I will, anytime I win, if I give a toast or a speech, I almost always cry. It's a weird, it's part of my thing. And I don't mean to. I'm like, all right, turn on the waterworks. But I think about public expressions of love or anything like that, I, I get very misty-eyed very quickly. All right, you've heard it here first. Oscar speech. Yes. I want to thank David Chang <laughs> for no longer serving dumplings with the noodle bar. It inspired me. That's it for part one of my conversation with Nick Kroll. Stay tuned for part two coming next Thursday. 
If you like the show, do us a favor and give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Love giving Bill Simmons happy. Until next week, take care. Here's Yola Tango.